got a Bible in front of you, and I hope you do, then uh, please turn to that passage of Scripture we read earlier on. And uh, in particular, the, the second section we read. Acts 9 from verse 36 on. Now this morning, we stand on the threshold of a new year, don't we? And as we stand approaching 2013, let me ask you, what are your priorities? For the coming year. What is important to you in 2013? Have you given it uh, much thought? Have you thought about any New Year's resolutions and that sort of thing? Is it, is it to spend more time with family? Is that what's important? Is it to spend quality time with family? Is it to ensure that you get a good break at some point during the year to get a holiday? It's not a bad thing to do. Maybe your priority is to cut back on spending in the coming months. Or maybe it's just to cut back on the calories over the next year. What is important to you in 2013? Okay. And then... What about from a spiritual point of view? Have you thought about that? What is important to you spiritually? What are, (coughs) excuse me, your spiritual priorities in the coming year? Well, since we've got an opportunity this morning to kind of press pause and examine our lives before we go into the new year, (coughs) let's for a brief time together, let's consider what J.C. Ryle calls the most important subject in your practical religion. Okay, the most important subject in your practical religion. Let's consider prayer. Okay, prayer. And to do that, we're going to focus on (coughs) these Words, these verses that we've read together in Acts chapter 9. And this is a fascinating passage of scripture, isn't it? It's a very well-known passage. This deals with Peter and his itinerant ministry. So you've got Peter and he's traveling around the country and he's meeting with Christians He's spending time in Christian fellowship and he is spreading the good news of the gospel as he travels around. And, and first of all, we read that he goes to where? Lida. Okay? Lida. And this was about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And when he's in Lida, he heals Aeneas, the paralytic, doesn't he? <coughs> and then, From Lida, he moves on and he goes to a place called Joppa. And Joppa was about 10 miles further away. It was on the west coast of Palestine. And while he's in Joppa, he is involved in this incredible, amazing miracle. 
this raising from the dead of Tabitha, or Dorcas, as she's also known. And it's in that, that second portion, okay? This raising of Tabitha. This is where we're going to set out our stall. This is where we're going to camp out for a while just now. And if, if you're the type of person that must have a verse to hang your hat on eh, during a sermon, there's nothing wrong with that, then maybe verse 40 would be eh, the verse for you. Hang your hat on verse 40. It says, Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. And we see there the immense and thrilling power of prayer. And we're going to consider three points together this morning about this incident. Three points. And I'll mention these three points just now. I'll give you them just now, okay? We will look firstly at the precursor to prayer. Secondly, we will look at the posture of prayer. And then finally, thirdly, we will look at the power of prayer. So did you get those? Everyone get them? The precursor, the posture, and the power of prayer. Now, for a while over the Christmas period, I thought that our household was going to be the most progressive and the most modern household that you could find because it wasn't my mum who did the Christmas cooking, it wasn't my wife, it wasn't even my mother-in-law, but it was my father that did all the cooking in the household over Christmas. How cutting edge and how very 21st century was. But then, unfortunately, the whole pretense of this was absolutely shattered because as presents for Christmas, my wife received from Key a washing up brush and my daughter received a toy Dyson Hoover. So back we were conforming to these uh, archaic gender stereotypes, weren't we? And Ellie Rose, my little daughter, she loves her toy Hoover. But the thing is, it doesn't work. As with all uh, toys at Christmas, the toy Hoover requires batteries. You see, she's happy as Larry pushing it about the floor. But the Hoover is supposed to do things. It's supposed to flash The lights on it are supposed to go off. It's supposed to make a noise. I think it's even supposed to pick up some fluff from the ground. You see, it needs batteries to function properly. To be effective, it has to be accompanied by something else. It has to be accompanied by something 
critical. And we see a similar idea to that in this passage of Scripture and in our first point, the precursor to prayer. Because, you see, folks, it'd be really tempting and really easy just to rush ahead in this passage and focus on verse 40. Because verse 40 is it's the kind of the high point of this passage. And it's tempting to just focus on Peter's prayer. But before we do that, we've got to stop and we've got to notice the critical accompaniment to prayer. We've got to notice what makes this prayer effective. We've got to notice the precursor to prayer. We've got to notice the people's faith. The people's faith. So where do we see that? Well, just think about the disciples in this section of scripture. Think about the members of the Christian community that surround Tabitha. What do they do? What, what is it that, how do they behave? Well, they behave in almost a kind of confused way in the section, don't they? Because they prepare Tabitha's body for burial. Okay? They go through these purification procedures. They wash and cleanse Tabitha. But the tradition of the time was to see the body buried before sunset. And that was a firm tradition. And they don't do that, do they? Instead, what do they do? They take this dead body, they take Tabitha's body, and they take her upstairs. And they lay her in the upper room. And then what do they do? They send for Peter. Why do they do that? Why do they risk trouble? Why do they break tradition? And why do they send for Peter? Well, it's because these people, this Christian community, it has faith. You see, they will have heard about Aeneas. Okay, Lida's only ten miles away. They'd heard about Aeneas and his healing. And they believed that a God who has healed Aeneas, that that God can raise Tabitha from the dead too. They have faith. They display incredible faith. Okay, so the disciples are believing. They're showing faith. But who else? Think about the, think about the passage. Who else shows faith? faith here. Well, consider Peter and consider what he does. Now, I don't know if you can um, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment, okay? Just think about Peter in Lydda. And just imagine he's there and he is approached by two men. They run up to him. They're sweating. They're flustered, they run up, and they ask him to travel with them for ten miles and to raise someone from the dead. Okay? And how does Peter react? 
Does Peter shun them? Does Peter make his excuses? Not a bit of it. What does Peter do? Peter, he goes. He goes to Joppa. Why? Because Peter believes in his God. Peter believes that all things are possible with God. Peter believes that God can raise the dead, so he goes. And then what happens next, folks? This, this gets me every single time. Okay? What happens next with Peter? Right? Think about it. He, verse 40, what, what does he do? He goes to Joppa. And then what happens? Verse 40, it tells us that he prayed. And then, turning toward the dead woman... He said, Tabitha, get up. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see how amazing that is? He prays and then his next step is to speak directly to Tabitha. Do you get it? He prayed and then such was his faith that he expected Tabitha to be Alive, He believed in the power of prayer. He believed in his God and he expected Tabitha to be alive. He didn't pray with half an eye on Tabitha, just having a look to see if anything would happen. He spoke directly to her. He believed in the power of God. There is a demonstration here of the necessary accompaniment to prayer There is a demonstration of the necessary precursor to prayer. There is a demonstration of faith. A demonstration of faith. So friends, how do we apply that to ourselves this morning? You know, if, as James says, if is the prayer offered in faith that's effective. What can we take out of this that will make an impact to our lives just now, but also an impact on our lives in 2013? Well, let me suggest two things that we need to take away from this, okay? One, a miracle happened in Joppa because of prayer. And that means that you and I, that we must pray more. That in 2013, we're going to have to consider how we pray and the frequency of our prayer. And then we're going to have to revolutionize our prayer lives. And we're going to have to ensure that we come before our God in prayer On a daily basis. Two. Second thing. A miracle happened in Joppa. And it happened because of faith. And that means that we individually and collectively. That we are going to have to ask God to increase our faith. Do you get that? 
we're going to have to plead with our God that he pours out blessing on us and that we grow in belief, that we grow in how we rely upon him and that we grow in faith. Friends, faith is all important to prayer. Faith is the precursor to prayer. Now, I was uh, reading about body language this week. Body language. I don't know if there are any experts here in body language. I hope not, because I will be incredibly self-conscious talking to you in the future if I find that you are an expert in body language. But some people do place a great emphasis on body language, don't they? Some people say that we communicate a lot by how we move and how we stand and how we hold ourselves. And I can sort of dig that. I can sort of buy it to a certain degree, you know? I can buy the fact that if you stand with your your arms folded like this, then you are perhaps uh, reluctant or defensive. I, I get it. But anything more than that, I think I'll take a bit of convincing. And the article that I was reading this week, it was, uh, it was trying to persuade the reader that you can learn an awful lot about the emotional state of a person by how they move. And it said that if you walk with your back tilted forward slightly, then you are definitely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, a person who embraces all future challenges. And I'm not having it. I don't buy that even for a second. But what, what about our second point this morning? What about the posture of prayer? The posture of prayer. And let me first state that there is not one set position or posture for prayer in the Bible, is there? You know, if we scan scripture and read through scripture, we will find holy men and women conducting themselves in all manner of ways in prayer. You know, we've got examples of men standing in prayer or lifting their hands in prayer. They sit in prayer. Some face the temple, some bow down. There's no set formula but. In Acts chapter 9, we find Peter adopting what would seem to be a very, very telling posture in prayer, don't we? Can you see what it is? Your Bibles are open. Have a look at verse 40. What posture does he adopt? Verse 40 says, Peter got down on his knees and prayed. He got down on his knees. And you might say to that, so what? Come on, that is just an insignificant detail. Is that your reaction to that? Well, consider the fact that at this point 
in the upper room, Peter has sent everyone else away. Peter's the only person in that room. So if it's important enough a detail for Peter to relay and recount, then surely it's important enough a detail for you and I to consider just now. So why did Peter kneel? Well, by kneeling, it showed that Peter was sincere in prayer, doesn't it? Sincere in prayer. Because by getting to his knees, he's demonstrating that he's not taking prayer lightly. This is not something that he's approaching with, with, with flippancy or levity. He's taking prayer very, very seriously indeed. He knows that as we approach God in prayer, that we're approaching holy ground. So what does he do? He bows his head, he falls to the floor, and he gets to his knees in prayer. And it's, there's an element of, of, of humility there too, isn't there? This is humble sincerity because by getting to his knees, he's acknowledging that without God's involvement here, there ain't going to be no miracle. That without God's involvement, there's no point in going to Joppa without God's involvement These people who are weeping over their sister who is dead, they will carry on weeping. Without God's involvement, Tabitha will remain dead. So what does Peter do? He gets to his knees. And he pleads with God in humility and sincerity. And friends, um, what a difference it would make to our spiritual walk with God if we were to grasp the importance of sincerity in prayer. Okay, sincerity in prayer. Right, take communal prayer as an example here. Take the church's prayer meeting as an example. If Our prayer meeting was marked by sincerity and sincere prayer. Let me ask you, what would it look like? What do you think our church prayer meeting would look like if it was marked by sincere prayer? Well, the first thing is, surely, that if we took prayer seriously, then our church, our prayer meeting would be well attended. It would be a bustling meeting. We wouldn't be meeting in the smallest room of the church. We would have to meet out here. It'd be well attended. And then also, it would be a meeting that was marked by fervent prayer for the lost. It would be a meeting where there's an evangelistic zeal that comes across in prayer. So be a meeting marked by urgent prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ in parts of the world where there is genuine persecution because they're like us. They profess Jesus Christ. And if we took our prayer meeting seriously, 
if there was sincere prayer, then there would be tears too. Because there would be genuine, heartfelt prayer for people here in this congregation who are going through hard times, difficult, difficult times. You see, in general, in general, the prayer meeting acts as a spiritual barometer of a church. You can tell the spiritual health of a congregation if you look at its prayer meeting. And if we walk with God, and if we're walking with God as we should, you will be able to see that from our communal times of prayer. Now, there are so many things in place in this church. And if, and if God blesses us in this place in 2013, it is going to be an incredibly exciting place to be from a spiritual point of view. But hear this. Nothing is going to happen. Nothing of any consequence unless we build everything that we do on a foundation of prayer. Because you see, Peter knew that Tabitha would remain dead unless he got down on his knees and he pleaded with God. And of this church, if you and me, this congregation, if we want to see the spiritually dead raised to life, then we're going to have to join together and we're going to have to kneel before our God in prayer, the posture of prayer. Now, at this time of year, the TV's pretty awful, isn't it? At this time of year, we tend to get nothing but kind of review shows. You know the sort of thing, the countdown shows. The 50 greatest songs of 2012. Or the 100 greatest TV moments of the past year. And I saw recently that Empire magazine had compiled a list of the 50 best TV shows of all time. And number four on that list was The West Wing. The West Wing. And I don't know if there are any connoisseurs of The West Wing here. If not, I'd recommend it highly. Give it a blast. A great show. But it deals with battles for power within the American political system. Okay? The West Wing... it shows the lengths that people are willing to go to to get into the corridors of power in the White House. And then once they're there, it shows the lengths that people are willing to go to to get to where the real power is, to get the ear of the American president in the Oval Office. That's where the real power is. If you've got the ear of the president, then politically, you've made it. And let's bring all of this to a conclusion. And let's end this morning just thinking about point three, and that's the power of prayer. The power of prayer. 
And quite simply, very simply, we see that the power of prayer comes from the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. The risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And yeah, okay. We see that pretty obviously in verse 34 and the healing of Aeneas. Don't we? Verse 34. Because Peter says to Aeneas, what does he say? Can you see it in verse 34? He says, Jesus Christ heals you. But we see the power from the risen Christ elsewhere in this passage of Scripture too. Because all over this section, this whole section is saturated with parallels. And if you know your Bible and you think about it, your mind, and you think about parallels here, your mind is going to be drawn to the episode of Jairus' daughter, isn't it? Where Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. The girl dies. What happens? Jesus takes her by the hand, just as happens here, and he speaks to her and tells her to get up, just as happens here. But... There is a further and slightly more subtle parallel that the author draws our attention to. Because here, Luke parallels in the imagery and in the wording. He parallels the raising of Tabitha to life. And he parallels that with the raising of the Son of God, Jesus Christ by the Father in that tomb in Jerusalem. There are parallels. You see, I'll not go through them all. There's so many. But we see the same verb is used. It's an unusual verb. And it's used in this raising of Tabitha as is used in Mark 16 of the raising of Jesus. Then, next parallel, you've got this newly resurrected person. And you've got, next step, a presentation of the resurrected person to a company of believers. And then you've got the same incredibly unusual form of words used in that presentation of Tabitha as is used in the presentation of Jesus. Acts 1.3, he showed himself to these men and gave them convincing proofs that he was alive. And here, Peter presented Tabitha to them alive. We've got here, friends, deliberate imagery that reminds us that our Savior is not dead, that he is risen and he is ascended. And now that he is risen, where is he? He is in the throne room of God. And what is he doing there, friends? Well, our Lord is sat at the right hand of God. He has the Father's ear. And he is perfecting our prayers. And he is interceding on our behalf. He is interceding for his people. Friends, Christ has the ear of a mighty God, a God who's promised to hear and answer our prayer. So why on earth would we be silent? Why on earth 
would we not pray? So this year, let's be people who pray. 2013, let's be people who pray. This Thursday night at half past six, let's be people to pray. And if we do that, who knows? Who knows? Verse 42 might be true of us. Because it says that this raising of Tabitha through the power of prayer, it became known all over Joppa. And many people, many people believed in the Lord. So let me ask you again, what is important to you in 2013? What is important? Well, let it be the precursor. Let it be the posture. And let it be the incredible, God-given and miraculous power, the power of prayer. Let's.